If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's Best Eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's Best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything. So you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well-dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. I'm your inner dream monologue, and you're fast asleep, so I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Two centuries ago, in 1820, a group of political radicals launched a revolutionary plan to murder the cabinet in what became known as the Cato Street Conspiracy. This bungled plot is the subject of today's episode. Our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, spoke to the author and historian Stephen Bates, who wrote a feature on Cato Street for the March issue of BBC History magazine, to find out more about how the conspiracy unfolded. Stephen, um, 200 years ago, in February 1820, Britain was rocked by the uh, Cato Street conspiracy, which is a, a botched attempt to butcher the entire cabinet. Um, I was wondering if you could start just describing the, the conspiracy in a bit greater detail. Yes, the Cato Street conspiracy was um, a botched assassination attempt by a group of uh, uh, would-be revolutionaries in London uh, to kill the entire British cabinet when they sat at dinner. It was a conspiracy that um, really never happened because 
the plotters, although they were deadly serious, um, didn't know that they were being set up by the government itself. Um, and uh, they were getting all ready to go out on their assassination spree when uh, they were interrupted by Bow Street Runners, the policemen of the day, and most of them were arrested in a great big scuffle in a stable in Cato Street, which is just off the Edgware Road. It's a little side street um, uh, cul-de-sac, and uh, some of them escaped, most of them didn't, and were rounded up, and the ringleaders were subsequently put on trial and would be executed a few months later in a particularly brutal fashion. But um, it was something that caused the government uh, great panic and uh, confusion and fear. And uh, it was, for a very brief moment in time, something of deadly seriousness to the British state. Sure. And um, can you tell us a, a little bit more about the, the, the lead conspirators? I mean, I, I, mean, I understand um, the man who, who, who led the conspiracy was a man called Arthur Thistlewood. I mean, what was his background and, and what inspired his radicalism? Yes, Arthur Thistlewood, and it's a very British sort of name. It doesn't sound much like Vladimir Lenin or any of the other great uh, revolutionaries of history. Um, he was an illegitimate son of a Lincolnshire farmer, um, who'd had a reasonable start in life, uh, but he'd failed in most of the schemes he'd adopted uh, to make money. He'd been briefly an ensign in the local militia um, up in Yorkshire, and uh, he'd failed as a farmer um, during the course of the Napoleonic War, and he drifted into London, where he became radicalised. This sounds a bit like modern Muslim uh, uh, radicals and extremists. He became radicalised listening and reading uh, the uh, revolutionary doctrines of a man called Thomas Spence, who was a bookseller in London and a pamphleteer who believed that... Uh, the only way that society could be made more equitable and uh, liberty established uh, was for all the land in the country to be held in common, to be owned by the parish in each case and let out to the local inhabitants and uh, rebid for every year. It was a, a land redistribution scheme, which of course uh, was utterly opposed by any landowners. And of course, Parliament was made up entirely of landowners, as of course was the government. Uh, so they were never going to be interested or um, uh, enthusiastic for the Spencian uh, doctrines. And uh, indeed, uh, Spencer was locked up for sedition several times, uh, and he had died in 1814, though his ideas lived on. And so um, Thistlewood basically took on his um, his ideas then. And um, who did he gather around him? What, what do we know about the other lead conspirators? Um, well, Thistlewood had been involved in the radical movements around uh, uh, various political movements in London uh, during the post-Napoleonic uh, War period after Waterloo. Um, and the people who joined him in the stable block in Cato Street were men who similarly had been disappointed in life, had been 
economic failures whose businesses and trades had uh, collapsed after the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, one was a butcher, another was a bootmaker, uh, a third was a tradesman of uh, uh, boots and shoes, and one was a cabinet maker. They'd all lost out economically uh, in the post-war depression, and they were practically starving, most of them. They didn't have any money, and they were easily seduced by the idea that uh, a new government would produce prosperity and, more importantly, food for all. Uh, one of the plotters uh, uh, in an earlier uprising a couple of years before was told that there would be a provisional government set up which he took to mean a government that would provide provisions for everyone. Right, okay. Um, so um, would it be safe to say this wasn't a very well-organised conspiracy? I mean, did it e ever stand any realist realistic chance of succeeding? No, it wouldn't have ever succeeded, not least because the government had infiltrated... Uh, all the radical movements uh, that sprang up in this period, uh, they sent spies, paid informers into uh, the movements, and some of them uh, not only reported back on what uh, radicals were saying, uh, but also uh, helped to foster some of the plans and plots that were uh, current at that time. They even incited uh, uprisings. So um, far from being just informers, they were proactive participants. And that was the case in Cato Street as well, because right. uh, uh, Thistlewood's deputy was a man called George Edwards. Um, and Thistlewood obviously trusted him implicitly. Um, and unfortunately, Edwards was the spy in the middle of the plot. So how did the two meet? Do we, do we know? Uh, I think they probably met. It, it's not entirely clear, but I think they probably met um, through the radical networks and uh, circles of, uh, of groups and plotters around, uh, around and about the capital. Uh, most... Uh, people campaigning for political change after the Napoleonic War were actually peaceful demonstrators, although they terrified uh, the government and those in authority because uh, they naturally thought, ministers thought, that uh, beginning reform, as the Duke of Wellington said, was equivalent to beginning revolution. They thought right. that uh, however moderate uh, people's political demands were for representation in Parliament, that would only lead to uh, the French Revolution style, uh, where everyone would, uh, in authority, would have their heads cut off. And so do they see it kind of the thin end of the wedge then? They saw it as very much the thin end of the wedge. Yeah. Okay, so... Um so did the government at the time use informers? Was that a common tactic of theirs to plant informers in sort of potential uh, radical radical cells? Yes, it was, because the government, of course, in those days didn't have a police force. The nearest yeah. they had was the Bow Street Runners, um, who were a professional uh, force, um, but didn't cover the entire country and... Uh, 
um, were fairly haphazard and amateurish in many respects. So the government had relatively few levers to keep uh, track on uh, potential subversives and revolutionaries. And they used uh, uh, spies and informers, very often men uh, who were down on their luck, who offered um, themselves to the Home Secretary, uh, Viscount Sidmouth, um, in return for money. And they were often as disreputable as the um, as the plotters themselves. They came from the same milieu. They were motivated by money to get out of the poverty, poverty trap. And frankly, the government um, didn't um, assess them particularly closely, or um, monitor their activities as closely as they might have done. They were just happy to be told what was going on. And George Edwards yeah. was um, uh, was the man in this particular instance who um, uh, conceived, probably conceived of the plot, uh, and certainly uh, inspired it. So how exactly did he do that? What what tactics did George Edwards employ to sort of provoke the plot, as it were? Well, he uh, he told Thistlewood that there was uh, a plan for the whole cabinet uh, to meet at dinner at uh, the house of Lord Harraby, who was the president of the council. And that house was in Grosvenor Square, which, of course, is not very far away from the Edgware Road and Cato Street. Yeah. And... Uh, he claimed that there was an advertisement in uh, one of the London newspapers at the time saying that the cabinet were all going to have dinner together. And Thistlewood immediately thought this would be a great opportunity with them all together uh, to break into the house and assassinate them, uh, cut off their heads, stick them on poles on London Bridge, and the working class would rise up and acclaim their new uh, provisional government. And so they they gathered in this. Am I right in saying this hayloft? Is that right? Yeah, it was it was the loft above a rather dilapidated stables. Yeah, and that was where the Bow Street Runners burst in upon them. Is that is that is that correct? Yes, I mean the Bow Street Runners um, were not exactly were keeping the place under surveillance, but were not exactly discreet about it. They were hanging around the street corner and opposite the pub at the end of the street and the conspirators brushed past them in fact Thistlewood who probably knew one or two of them at least by sight um, brushed past a couple of uh, Bow Street runners on his way up to the hayloft uh, said oh excuse me as he squeezed his way past stared at them in the face and still went on with it so um, he may be right. not have been the uh, sharpest knife in the box and then, am I right in saying that one of the Bow Street runners was killed um, in in the loft? Yes, that's that's right, Spencer. The um, the access to the loft was by a single ladder up through a trapdoor, and the Bow Street runners burst in just as the plotters were arming themselves for the evening's work. Uh, there were only twenty plotters who turned up. Uh, Thistlewood had been expecting 50, uh, which he thought was the bare minimum to carry out the plot, but most of them had got cold feet already. And he decided he'd better press on even so. And um, they were buckling up sabres and cutlasses and uh, 
muskets and goodness knows what. And uh, suddenly up through the trapdoor, like uh, the genie in a pantomime, came the Bow Street Runners. You can imagine it was a a dark loft um, lit by candlelight, which probably pretty rapidly uh, got doused. Uh, And so it was a scuffle almost in the dark because it was nighttime. And uh, Thistlewood seized a a sword and ran through one of the first Bow Street runners to get into the loft, a man called Richard Smithers, who proclaimed, oh, I'm I'm dead, and dropped to to uh, to the floor. And um, Thistlewood and most of the others managed to scramble out through the windows or down, down the steps and uh, uh, and tried to make good their escape. But there were more Bow Street officers outside and uh, most of them were rounded up. Although, as it was pitch black, no street lighting in those days, um, some people managed to creep away. Some were never caught. No, you, no, um, you write in your feature um, for the magazine that the conspirators planned to cut off the hands of the Foreign Secretary, a man by the name of is it Lord Castlereagh. Um, what made him such a hate figure for the conspirators? Uh, Castlereagh was um, a difficult man to like, I think. Uh, he was fairly young. He was uh, uh, an Ulsterman with uh, an Ulsterman's uh, uh, hard accent, I suspect. And uh, although he wasn't a very good speaker in the commons he took a hard line on uh, most of the issues of the day and he was regarded as uh, one of those implacable tory hard-faced men who'd done well out of the war to coin a later phrase um and uh, he was regarded much more even than lord liverpool the prime minister as the hard man of the cabinet um, I don't suppose you can draw direct analogies, but uh, a sort of Dominic Cummings hard-faced figure in those okay. days, although he was an MP, he was an elected politician, and he was the Foreign Secretary. Right, okay. Um, now, how much sympathy for the conspirators and the conspiracy would there have been among the wider British public, do you think? I think it's very difficult to say. Uh, Certainly uh, members of the crowd who turned up for their subsequent execution were relatively sympathetic towards them. uh, The economy was on the turn by this stage. It was uh, people were beginning to get more money in their pockets and more food in their bellies. And uh, the appetite for radical uh, uprisings or even radical demands for political reform was just beginning to wane. And uh, I think people were pretty intimidated. They'd seen what had happened to peaceful demonstrators in Manchester six months before when the cavalry had charged a peaceful meeting and 18 people were killed in the uh, massacre of Peterloo, as it was called. Uh, And uh, the government's uh, repressive policies had been a pretty effective deterrent. So I suspect uh, suspect sympathy was fairly limited towards uh, Mr Thistlewood and his crew. And did that apply to a lot of uh, radicals as well? Whereas, um, am I right in saying there was a 
a, a bit of an argument among the, the radical community, as in some promoted more peaceful measures and some um, promoted more uh, sort of violent measures, such as these taken by the uh, conspirators. Yes, so there were two strands of thought about how to gain political reform at this stage in the 19th century. One, the much larger strand, was a sort of respectable, peaceable uh, um, approach to political reform, uh, making the argument peaceful demonstrations, petitions to the commons, rather respectful and uh, certainly not at all violent. But there was a smaller breakaway faction of which Thistlewood was uh, an eminent example, um, which said, no, 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 the whole system needed shaking up and uh, and uh, a revolution as in France was what was needed to change the whole political circumstances of the country still to come on the history extra podcast well in the way it's uh, uh, both the first and the last of political terrorism in in this country it was the first attempt to destroy the cabinet by assassination and it was the first of a new sort of terrorism in many respects we don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments that comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. And, and how, how, how long a shadow did the French Revolution cast over, uh, over these events? I mean, I, I imagine that was a, a source of real fear for the government. 
Oh, it certainly was. And uh, it was only uh, at this stage 30 years in the past. So it was well within living memory. And in fact, both Lord Liverpool and uh, Lord Castlereagh, uh, the two leading members of the government, had been students uh, at uh, Cambridge in the 1780s and early 1790s. And both of them had gone over to France to uh, witness the events there. Indeed, Castlereagh had started off fairly sympathetic, as a lot of young, slightly more radical people were in the 1780s before the French Revolution turned violent and uh, people started having their heads cut off. That certainly turned uh, Castlereagh against uh, radicalism and out of all sympathy with the French Revolution. But uh, what had happened in France, uh, the turmoil and the massacres and the executions and the bloodletting, um, it was certainly a terrible warning as far as the British ruling class, uh, the aristocracy, was concerned. Okay. Um, now, what about the Napoleonic Wars? I mean, um, did they did they help make conditions fertile for um, an attempted revolution at this time? Well, the Napoleonic Wars were over after 1815 and the Battle of Waterloo, but that was succeeded by a number of economic circumstances which had a a, a very destabilising effect on the country which had been at war for the previous 25 years. Um, first of all, there were a lot of disbanded soldiers um, who were coming home looking for work, uh, the economy uh, was somewhat in decline because a lot of the wartime economy was wound down at that stage. And on top of all that, um, with the loss of demand for employment uh, from uh, employers, um, with a reduction in wages following the end of the war, and with um, a, the coincidence of a series of very bad summers and very bleak harvests, uh, which put up the price of food. So you had um, a sort of vice-like grip of lower wages and higher prices. And that was what stirred a lot of the discontent. The bad weather that was associated with the summers after 1815, 1816, 1817, 1818 and 1819 uh, were actually caused, although they didn't know it at the time, by an enormous eruption in uh, the Indonesian islands of a, a volcano called Mount Tambora, which is probably the biggest uh, eruption of a volcano, certainly in recorded history. Um, and that spread a black cloud across the Northern Hemisphere and caused what was known as the summer without uh, uh, sunshine. Um, uh, it's certainly in 1816, 1817, very bad harvests, very disruptive weather, uh, snow in June in, uh, in England, for instance, and mass starvation was the result of all that. So there was a lot of reason for discontent, not all of it directly connected with the French, uh, the Napoleonic Wars, um, but certainly arising as a consequence of them. Sure. Now, as you've already hinted at, the, the punishments meted out to the conspirators uh, you know, was truly gruesome. I think I'm right in saying that five were hanged outside Newgate Prison before their heads were hacked off with a butcher's knife. 
Um, now, why was the government determined to, to make such a spectacle of, of their deaths? And, and what was the public reaction to that? The government was certainly concerned to make um, an example of the plotters to actually terrify and overawe anyone who might think that uh, uh, this was an acceptable form of protest. And uh, it was a relic of the um, Middle Ages hang drawing and quartering uh, that um, men should be beheaded. Uh, actually, the punishment was that they should be hanged and cut down from uh, the noose while they were still alive and then having their heads cut off. But um, George the Fourth was um, marginally more civilised, I suppose you could say, right. than, uh, 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 than that, and uh, allowed that the uh, convicted men should be hanged until death and then their heads would be cut off. Um, and this, even 200 years ago, uh, you can imagine the revulsion that there was to this. Uh, there was quite a backlash against it and it was never tried again. Um, what would you say was the immediate fallout from the plot? Was it followed by a, a government crackdown more generally? Yes, it was. The, the government um, was already cracking down on uh, dissent, um, limiting rights of uh, uh, association and an, a number of repressive acts designed specifically to uh, to prevent assemblies and associations which might lead to men conspiring to as they thought, overthrow the government or inspire a revolution, actually it cracked down on people who perfectly legitimately were arguing for political change and even constitutional change by constitutional means. And would I be right in saying that that crackdown worked? I mean, it, it strikes me that there, there weren't many more Cato Street conspiracies over the, over the following decades. Was, is that a direct result of the government's actions, do you think? Well, there were, but what happened was that from 1820 onwards, once the effects of um, Mount Tambora had uh, uh, waned, uh, harvests improved, prices went down, employment started to pick up, and so there was less immediate pressure for political and constitutional change for a few years. Um, everything was pretty cyclical, and uh, within 10 years or so, there would be agricultural unrest um, uh, in the country, the swing riots and disturbances, um, a, a revolt by uh, the peasantry, the countryside peasantry across southern England uh, against uh, food prices and uh, poor wages and working conditions. Uh, and then there would be agitation, of course, for political reform. The Great Reform Act came in 1832, and that would be succeeded by the Chartist movement um, in the 1830s and 40s, which was, by and large, a peaceful movement calling for political representation, political change. And, of course, that then was uh, defeated, essentially, in after 1848, uh, the movement uh, was on the wane and uh, dispersed again as economic conditions improved in the 1850s. So there was a cyclical uh, 
response to um, political reform. Of course, political reform did come eventually and slowly through a number of uh, political reforms during the 19th century. There's the Reform Act of 1832. The franchise was widened again in uh, 1867 and again in the 1880s and then after the First World War when women finally got the vote. Um, And these were... uh, largely responses to political pressure from outside, but they were peaceful movements for political change, although certainly the Chartists um, caused the government quite a lot of worry. Do we get any indication from any of the sources of of, um, what impact the plot had on its intended targets, you know, the likes of Lord Castlereagh? I mean, did they have to beef up their own personal security? Well, there are a number of... um, personal letters and diaries, um, including by Princess Levin, who was the wife of the Russian ambassador, who found herself at dinner with uh, Lord Castlereagh uh, soon after the Cato Street conspiracy. And she recorded that um, he showed her the pistols he'd started carrying with him, um, just in case he got attacked again. Um, And uh, she found that rather alarming. Princess Levin actually attended the execution of the Cato Street conspirators and uh, was repulsed by it. She thought uh, it was unnecessarily cruel to to, uh, conduct the executions in that way. And... How much of a cool celebra was the Cato Street conspiracy? I mean, did it really grab the nation's attention? Well, I guess it uh, grabbed uh, the political nation's attention. Um, of course, the press was not as um, not as uh, widely read or as uh, accessible in those days as it would later become in the century. Um, but yes, certainly the political um, classes were very well aware of what had happened. They were aware of a series of um, uh, semi-violent uprisings, most of them fairly, actually fairly minor, um, but uh, potentially very violent. Uh, so people did know about it. Um, there were national newspapers like The Times, and soon there would be the Manchester Guardian and other uh, regional papers which were reporting these these events. Um, but certainly there was no sort of follow-up um, mass uprising. Uh, one of the things Thistlewood told his followers was that um, there was a, an uprising in Glasgow. Um, now, he didn't have any contact with that, um, but he'd been told that people were uh, rising up in, in Glasgow. In fact, the Glasgow uprising really didn't happen. They scarcely got out of the pub. Um, uh, and uh, it was very difficult to coordinate um, those sorts of uh, actions together. And um, uh, at that stage, uh, no, there, were, there wasn't the uh, united national ac- action which really would have concerned the authorities. So what for you makes a Cato Street conspiracy such a significant event in British history? Well, in the way, it's uh, uh, both the first and the last of um, political terrorism in in this country. It was the first attempt to um, destroy the cabinet by assassination. Um, And it was the first of a new sort of terrorism in many respects. Uh, Terrorism that we're 
relatively uh, used to these days of violent uh, direct action. Um, and of course, it was a complete failure in its in its day, um, but sufficiently alarming and terrifying to the authorities uh, to make uh, repression certainly temporarily uh, much stronger. And um, uh, that would probably lead in the 1820s to uh, the attempt to set up a metropolitan police force, the Bobbies of Robert Peel oh, yeah. fame. Um, uh, but uh, uh, as a long-term thing, um, Britain really didn't have uh, a revolutionary movement uh, until arguably after the First World War, and it certainly didn't have a terrorist movement probably until the IRA in the 1980s. And of course, uh, the IRA very nearly succeeded in assassinating the cabinet at the Brighton bomb at the Tory party conference in 1984. Um, so the IRA, 160-odd years later, uh, got rather further than Arthur Thistlewood ever managed. So in some ways, it, it was very much a, a modern plot then. Well, in the um, nihilistic way that it was uh, uh, carried out and intended, uh, yes, it was. It certainly didn't have a particularly coherent political philosophy behind it, except um, uh, an anarchistic one in, in many ways, although I doubt that Thistlewood would have recognised it as such. That was Stephen Bates. You can read his feature on the Cato Street Conspiracy in the March issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. And it also includes articles on Henry V, the Dark Ages, cat burglars and the Glencoe Massacre. You can also read more about the Cato Street plot at our website at historyextra.com forward slash Cato Street Conspiracy. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in next on Monday when Elmer Brenner will be discussing medieval medicine.